and your voice seems to be very suited to come back to you as well. Well, thank you very much, Dan. I, when, I, when I was on a Songs of Praise when I was 15, I was told by my interviewer that I had a very good voice with the BBC. So there we go. I can tell him that I have. Uh... <laughs> wow, that is some fascinating. Uh, maybe we should create a Patreon for some bonus episodes just to give our listeners that, that extra content that they, they know and love. Tell everyone about my favourite hymns. Yeah, I, I only wish that I too was on Songs of Praise when I was 15. Yeah, I mean, but... as, as head of cool... Head you of know. cool. That's, that's <laughs> oh, sorry, that's Fiona, yeah. sorry, that's Fiona's job. I forget. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Alice Pin Institute's podcast. My name is Daniel Pryor, and I'm the head of research at the ASI. And in this week's episode, I am pleased to be joined by my co-hosts, uh, our director of strategy, John McDonald, and the ASI's newest team member, Emily Fielder, our head of communications. In this episode, we'll be discussing the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Sunak's Mays lecture, and the policing bill. It's been just over a week since Russian forces invaded Ukraine on the orders of Vladimir Putin, Russia's president. Thousands have died, and the UN estimates that refugee numbers now stand at over 1 million. The international community, horrified, has enacted sweeping economic sanctions to attempt to cripple the Russian war machine and up the costs of war, whilst protesters in Russia, as well as around the world, made their feelings heard loudly on the streets. Uh, now, obviously, this is a huge topic. We've discussed the, the build-up to this in the past on the Pin Factory. So we're going to focus on a few key areas directly related to the ASI's work, I think, rather than try and uh, undoubtedly fail to provide a, an accurate overview of the conflict as it stands at the time of recording on Friday. Uh, so I think the first issue, and, and mentioning it in the intro, is uh, the sanctions that have been imposed by most countries, actually, uh, certainly in the EU and in NATO, but also around the world. Uh, John, I think coming to you first on this, are there any sanctions that particularly stood out to you as being notable and having any real bite to them? I think the two that are that are most prominent are the uh, the freezing of of assets of Russia's central bank, which limits its ability to access its some um, four hundred and seventy billion pounds worth of of dollar reserves, and then also it being removed from the, the from the SWIFT messaging system, which allows it to uh, to transfer money smoothly across borders. I think those two sanctions go go quite far in cutting Russia off uh, from the broader world and kind of really pulls it into that autarkic state that'll that'll probably put a bit of a a bit of a time limit on, on how long it can really sustain itself uh, post-invasion unless sanctions are lifted. And I guess a, a question for, for both of you, really, and I'll go to Emily. What do you see as being the purpose of sanctions? Because obviously there's there's some that will would argue that this is the way of trying to, to actually stop Russia from, from continuing its invasion and, and reverse its course, whereas others would, would kind of say, well, it's just trying to punish Russia in the long term, but there's not really a chance of this changing its behavior. Do you see yourself in one of those two camps at all or not? Mm, I, I mean, to be honest, I think the greatest effect of the sanctions will actually be on the ordinary people of Russia. Um, so as you said, Dan, I think a lot of ordinary Russians don't support the war at all, um, even before the sanctions really started to bite ordinary Russian citizens. Um, a lot of people were coming out into the streets um, a pretty great personal risk to protest against the war. And these sanctions are now really starting to bite people back in Russia. So, you know, the uh, Moscow Stock Exchange has not been trading for several days in a row. Um, people are struggling to get mortgages because interest rates have been hiked. 
Um, savings are being wiped out. Banks under sanctions can't accept Apple Pay or Google Pay either. So I think that's actually likely to undermine support for Putin domestically in Russia. And I think that's where the danger for Putin is really starting to lie. And John, similar sort of perspective from you? Yeah, I, I believe so. I mean, I think the biggest problem for, for Putin now is the, is the sort of long-term tenability of his, his internal regime. Yeah, so, so I've been in, in, I'm always tend to be in two minds about broad-based economic sanctions. So we've talked a lot about individual targeted sanctions on China in the past on this podcast. And I have my sympathies with those very much and understand what the goal of those is. Uh, and when it comes to, to these sanctions as well, certainly the ones that are specifically targeted at, at certain oligarchs or, or certain um, directly security-related or, or defense-related businesses, I think that there's a, a good case for them. But my classic response usually to, to sanctions that are directly aimed at, at hurting the Russian economy more broadly and, and by extension the ordinary Russian citizen is to be worried that, well, are you getting the, the bang for your buck here? Because ultimately you're making life significantly worse for ordinary Russians who, as has been demonstrated, many of which do not support this invasion and, and rightly so. But are you getting the, the kind of payoff for that in terms of encouraging them to, to really feel the negative impact of war um, as the international community sees that. And it, it does seem in, in this case, certainly, like on the margin, sanctions are are shifting public opinion ever more against Putin's invasion, uh, though it's difficult to tell that for certain. It does seem like these are, are having the sort of intended effect, not so much that, you know, I, I'm sure that, and, and it certainly seems like Russia was very well prepared for a significant and long-term sanctions from many different countries in, in its preparations for this with its huge reserves of foreign currency, even though it now can't access some of that. Uh, thanks to these sanctions, it, it, it does seem like it's less about giving Russia um, a stronger incentive to climb down and more about changing some of the, the domestic political incentives for, for Putin. Um, but coming on to the, the kind of broader backlash i think against russia it's not just come from national governments it seems like we're, we're seeing this trend in every area of culture as well it comes to, uh, glasgow film festival i believe it was various uh, sporting bodies seem to be uh, excluding russian athletes or, or russian films and various companies have unilaterally decided quite aside from uh, state led or state laws, state command to stop doing business with Russia. Is this, uh, as we've discussed on the previous podcast, uh, an example of woke capitalism or should we be very much supportive uh, of these sort of things, John? Well, it's interesting. I saw this morning that uh, Netflix has stopped its production of the Anna Karenina. Uh, I think it's a TV series. I saw a university was now removing Dostoevsky from its literature uh, reading list. Um, which is all patently absurd. I think it, it it's quite concerning that you know as as much as we've moved on from from jingoistic sentiment, or at least as much as we think we have, uh, we still have this kind of very overt backlash and very unnecessary backlash. Right? I mean, those are those are great and both based on great works of literature. I suppose Anna Karenina being based on on a book and not obviously Dostoevsky is uh, 
is a literary classic. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm I'm shocked that you're a fan of that, John. I never had you down as a, a Dostoevsky fan. <laughs> I, I've never read any. I've not read Anna Karenina, but yeah, Dostoevsky is great. Oh, John, um, you're missing out. Anna Karenina is so good. I've I've it's heard. I've books. heard it's it's an excellent <laughs> book. Um, but yeah, as I say, a great shame that that, that stuff's been removed. Um, it, it doesn't make sense at all for the conflict with Russia and Ukraine to kind of bleed through into into cultural things like that. That's, that's interesting because I I have I think a more sympathetic perspective than you for some of these things. It's true that a lot of these sort of announcements from companies are I mean they're, they're signaling, but a lot of them are, are quite costly signaling in a sense. Like Netflix. Uh, clearly standing to or at least they think they stand to make a fair amount of of profit out of this and yet they are choosing not to um perhaps it's a it's kind of you know, values-based marketing or something if if uh, the cynic in me is is right but it also seems at least in some cases that the people that are decision makers in various large companies are making these sort of decisions in spite of their profit-seeking motives. Now, we've spoken about our, our previous uh, Capitalism After COVID paper on this podcast that maybe businesses should return to the business of, uh, of profit-making and worry less about um, promoting kind of social goals and things like this. But I wonder, Emily, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, whether this might be an example where actually it does, does make more sense to, um, to, to move towards businesses trying to achieve the social goal of making Russia a pariah. I think it's a case-by-case basis, really. I, I think if uh, businesses are trying to hit Russia in an economic sense, um, then the neoliberal in me actually might say that that's actually quite demonstrative of the positive impact that private businesses and individuals can have, um, even without government dictation. But having said that, I would agree with John that where they start to hit you know, ancient Russian cultural sites and literature, I think that to me seems a rather absurd. I think the two things are actually quite different. It doesn't have to be too complicated, right? I mean, I think it's perfectly reasonable for, for businesses to make a decision uh, about whether or not they want to, in their mind, support Putin's regime. And by the same token, it is obviously up to them to stop production of, of any shows that they're working on. But but one of them seems to be much more directly tied to to what's going on, and one seems to be a, as you say, a very costly uh, form of signalling. Right. So you know, if, you, if you're a company that that makes a product that directly funds or directly contributes to the Russian defence industry, I think you yeah. can certainly make a very strong, and I think probably uh, inarguable case uh for for no longer doing that yeah i think the most interesting cases for example uh, uh i heard also that uh apple's app store is no longer accessible in russia um which kind of poses an interesting ethical dilemma right because on one hand that does put a lot of pressure on on russia's population right that, that's something that people really care about and really would find quite upsetting and irritating and on the other it's probably quite effective uh as a measure of of kind of really bringing home the discomfort, you know, to to Putin um, and his regime, and in, in, in kind of making him feel cut off for, from the international community, you know, if if you can't even use, you know, pretty pretty ubiquitous technology properly anymore, right? Or something like DHL suspending all of their operations in Russia and Belarus, I think it is now that that happened mm. quite recently. That's going to make a, a huge difference to ordinary Russians' quality of life and. You know the, the the kind of the neoliberal again in me thinks about this in in terms of well, in some sense this is reflecting the social cost of war on ordinary 
Russians, right? It, it's making it clear that this is not without impact, that this is something that is going to, to make your quality of life worse, not just through the insane amounts of, of money that are being spent on Russia's army, navy, air force, etc., through their taxes, but also just through the impact that it has on people's attitudes towards their their country and their citizens. But moving on, I think just to to kind of finish up on on this section, because again, we we weren't going to cover everything. We focus on the things that the ASI is is most able and and most interested in impacting. Uh, Another topic we've been looking at is the refugee crisis that has been created already by Putin's invasion. Mentioned in the introduction, one million uh, refugees estimated to, to have been displaced uh, externally, similar sort of numbers internally displaced so far. Uh, Emily, what has the UK already done in this area? Because we, we have done something, um, but and more importantly, is it enough? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so the UK has taken two sort of larger measures. Um, so one of the things it's done is it's relaxed the family eligibility criteria. Um, this was previously very limited to immediate family. So under this, even parents and siblings can join uh, their families in the UK. And we've also seen that the Home Office has introduced uh, something they've called a humanitarian sponsorship pathway. And essentially under this, um, individuals and businesses can sponsor a refugee to come here. And this is obviously a really nice idea in principle. But the problem with this is it's really bureaucratic. And as uh, Yvette Cooper actually pointed out quite well in the House on Monday, um, only 500 people have come to the UK under these proposals in the last five years. Um, so while these steps are welcome, I wouldn't I wouldn't really say it's enough. So if we look at what the European Union's done, they've essentially waived visas um, and they've said that Ukrainians get to stay and work here for three years without claiming asylum. So my question would be, if 27 countries within the EU could agree on it that quickly, um, why can't we agree to the same thing? Yeah, and I, I think it's especially relevant since the majority of Ukrainian refugees, I imagine, um, are, are likely to move to the countries closer to them in Europe um, and immediately bordering you, you know, mm. Poland being a, a classic example uh, and various others. It certainly seems like with previous refugee crises, even though the, the kind of media narrative is often that well, the, the UK is, is full and doing more than its fair share, that most end up elsewhere in Europe. Um, and in general, when it comes to just about any recent refugee crisis, the majority of those that are displaced go to a neighboring country the vast majority moved to a, a neighboring country rather than further afield so you know it, it makes sense for for various reasons for some ukrainians to decide to, to come to the uk for you know, family reasons which as you say have been expanded but they might have other reasons they might speak english but they might not speak uh, french for example they might not speak german um, and england makes the most sense for them to come and and to me it seems like it, it seems like a very very clear moral duty um, in the same way that I think we had a moral duty when it came to or when it comes to the Afghan refugee crisis, Mm. um, certainly through through our direct involvement. But just generally, the fact that these people are fleeing from an illegal, horrible, uh, horrible war um, and we need to be stepping up just as much as uh, our friends in the European Union are doing. I wanted to to briefly bring, bring up Russian immigration as well. Um, because obviously it, it, there's some pressure on Russians, anti-war Russians who might want to leave Russia and, and you know move to other countries at this point. Mm. Um, I mean, to my mind, I think it's very important to welcome uh, those people with open arms. I think the last thing we want to do is make the Russian people feel like you know that the regime and Vladimir Putin are, the, are their only options, right? And so, to me, I, I don't want to see any kind of any sentiment about 
Russians being unwelcome, you know, in the UK and across the European Union. I just want to know if you guys have any thoughts on that as well. Yeah, I find that quite concerning too, actually. Um, I think it might have been Tom Tugendhat that, what did he say? It was something like, um, if, you know, all Russian nationals should be sent home. So I actually think it was really right that Boris Johnson came out and said, you know, Russians, this isn't your war, you're welcome here. Yeah, he. I, I think Tom... Uh quote unquote clarified that later say of course I didn't mean all all mm. Russians just just the baddies etc but but certainly his comments at the time were uh, yeah. were rather ill-judged in mm. retrospect but yeah it, it, it concerns me I, I saw a, a very cringe-inducing argument on on Twitter a couple of days ago about this which was interesting because it's something I, I talk about in some of my school talks on immigration it was someone saying well if we if we start um, letting in more anti-war Russians, then we're, we're creating a sort of brain drain on the, the anti-war kind of anti-Putin movement in Russia. And actually, we should we should force people who oppose Putin to stay in Russia in order to have the, the maximum effect there. And I'm thinking, well, I mean, quite aside from it being rather, rather cruel to subject people to, uh, to the, all the fun that comes with uh, an authoritarian regime like Putin's when they, they could continue their activities here. The fact is that they can probably do, a, in many cases, a much better job of, of being open and speaking out and being honest about uh, the various evils of Putin's regime if they're in the UK compared to Russia, feeling a lot more able, I imagine, without some of the chilling effects that you get from living under an authoritarian government to, to be able to speak your mind and, and actually be a more effective advocate for reform and for change in Russia than they would be otherwise. But I think probably on that note, uh, it's time to move on to the second section of today's podcast on the Chancellor's Mays Lecture. Last week saw the Chancellor deliver the annual Mays Lecture at the Bayes Business School, with the key takeaway being his call for a new culture of enterprise, as well as liberal references to the top man himself, Adam Smith. In many ways, he talked on his vision of a low-tax, high-productivity Britain. But do his words match his deeds? And what sort of policies can actually move us close to this reality? So first of all, I just wanted to, to ask a general question. Is what do we make of the lecture? Do we agree with Rishi's analysis that tax cuts are, are in fact not a silver bullet? Uh, and that they do have a time and a place, but, but that might not be now. Uh, I, I think that they do have a time and a place. Uh, and that time is now. Um, mm. So he's, he's half right. And it kind of gives me a Lord give me tax cuts but not yet vibes because he talks a lot about how you know he wants this vision of a low tax britain and of course in order to to get to that you have to lower taxes uh, and yet he does not want to lower taxes so i I, obviously it's it's more it's much more nuanced and complicated than that but it's kind of frustrating at at first glance and i think that he's seems to be certainly compared to to most free marketers including myself a lot a lot more uh, willing to, or sorry, a lot less willing to borrow now in the midst of what is a, a fragile recovery from a once-in-a-generation pandemic uh, than I, th- I think he should be. And the worry is that basically his his political economy is to raise taxes now with national insurance and things like that, and then cut different taxes uh, when it gets closer to the election that makes more sense from a political perspective to do so whereas i think that the way that the the best way to think about tax reform in the uk is 
sure, it's not always going to be revenue neutral and tax cuts don't always pay for themselves over the short to medium term, or in fact, sometimes in the long run. But there are still plenty uh, of tax cutting measures that can take place now that don't have a huge upfront cost and that will be pro-growth. Um, and this, to me, is, is just a little bit too treasury mindset. Um, and it's interesting because he, he kind of contradicts his own philosophy, or at least I consider it to be contradicting it later on in the lecture, um, as I shall we'll get into with, with some of his, his talk on um, taxes on business investment. Yeah, so talking about, you know, time, the right time and the right place for um, tax cuts, um, there's also a right time and a right place for tax rises. Um, and I think if you want to talk maybe about the national insurance rise, um, I would say that now is not the right time to raise taxes on um, ordinary working people, um, especially during a cost of living uh, crisis. So I think we can go both ways on that. Um, yeah, I think I think the national insurance rise is a, is a big one. It, it it seems hard to make the argument that there's a time and a place uh, to cut taxes and to raise taxes and that the time to raise taxes is apparently when there's a real a cost of living crunch on people, even if rising national insurance tax isn't going to make, you know, among other things, it won't make a world of difference to the people who, who need the difference the most. It's still kind of ideologically very bizarre to see to see Rishi raising taxes on on people across the board you know, during a time that, that everyone will be feeling a pinch. One of the, the examples that he used in this lecture to kind of demonstrate the tax cuts don't always pay for themselves was the uh, cuts to the headline rate of corporation tax in uh, the twenty the early 2010s, uh, mid-2010s rather, under the coalition government. And I think that that, to me, is a good example um, of, of where this thinking goes a little bit awry. It's true that they didn't pay for themselves in the traditional sense um, although it's commonly thought of that they did. But the reason that they didn't is because whilst the headline rate was cut, you had um, you had increases on in the, the effective tax on business investment in other areas, and hence our uh, kind of abolished the factory tax campaign, um, which we can talk about a bit further later on in this section. But the reason that they didn't pay for themselves is because in another area of, of corporation tax, taxes were hiked. So <laughs> it didn't have the desired long-term pro-growth, um, pro-investment effects, or that those, those were certainly blunted to a significant extent because real tax cuts have never been tried, As uh, <laughs> to paraphrase a slightly different political philosophy. So I've seen a, a fair amount of comment online around the lecture that, that kind of suggests that Rishi's missed the, the core problem facing the economy at the moment, which, which would be the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, in that he, he was sort of suggesting his goal post-pandemic was to return to something more akin to peacetime economics, right? That that ultimately, once we can get through this difficult bit, then he can kind of return to a, a low tax, high growth uh, economy. And I saw from from Annalisa Dodds, for example, suggesting that what we really need uh, is to move towards something like a resilience economy, uh, which presumably means, you know, much more insourcing, uh, as they like to call it, uh, of jobs, um, and that that free trade uh, has only kind of reduced our economic shock absorbers, uh, as it were. And I, I wanted to ask you both if you thought those arguments kind of held any water, or if actually free trade and and you know a strong uh, import uh, market actually kind of helped with resilience as opposed to hamp- hampered it. I think to to a large extent, it's a false trade off, right? So that this idea that okay, if you insure, then you're going to get 
less economic growth, less efficiency. You're not going to gain as much from the huge benefits that globalization has brought. But at least when it comes to large external shocks, you're going to be able to weather the storm better. And as we have, I think, very convincingly argued many times, uh, both on an, the, this podcast and in our various research outputs and op-eds and whatnot, this, this is just not how it works in reality. A lot of resilience comes from the globalized system that we currently inhabit. If you have a domestic shock um, to a particularly important aspect of production, um, imagine, for example, you're in Ukraine and you have something, I think a fifth or, or even a quarter, I think, of, of the world's wheat is between Russia and Ukraine. If that gets disrupted, then you're able to import food from abroad, you're able to rely on a smooth frictionless or at least fairly frictionless international trade system. Uh, and you're able to weather that storm much more effectively as a direct result of globalization, of global supply chains, all the sort of things that the kind of insuring brigade talk about as undermining our national security and our national resilience, whereas in fact, they're they're increasing them. So moving towards a wartime economy and, and kind of, <laughs> which I, I assume is the, the the kind of hint that's been getting that's that people are getting at here yeah it, it just seems completely counterproductive and, and, and autarky is not just far far less efficient and far far less effective at raising living standards um, for ordinary brits but also in many ways undermines the sort of resilience it claims to to increase it does seem that history has taught us that initially it seems like these resilience kind of siege economies do well at the start of, of kind of tense times and uh, and during conflict, but that it's usually the kind of free market liberal uh, societies that, that win out in the end. Um, but I wanted to kind of move on to some of the positives uh, in in the lecture. Rishi did seem to be quite concerned with boosting capital investment in the UK. That I think that was one of his core priorities. Um, now, Abolishing the factory tax has been something that we that we care a lot about the ASI that we've been campaigning for for a long time, and there were some subtle hints uh, that that full expensing might be here to stay. Um, I wanted to ask if, if you guys thought that that maybe maybe would be be on the cusp of that, or if we think that it might be still something that that the Treasury wouldn't be willing to do for the uh, for the revenue lost would be too much for them. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that you have. Um... On the one hand, the kind of clear treasury mindset and then seemingly a willingness to carry on with a policy that does have quite a large upfront cost in, in the, the super deduction, at least, and, and perhaps full expensing and extending that to, to structures and buildings, as well as the, the kind of plant and machinery that we've already seen. But I am, I, I think I am sceptical as to once that temporary super deduction expires next year, just how much it's going to be. Uh, how much of it is going to be retained simply because, uh, especially if you look at, at not uh, penalizing investment in structures and buildings for, for businesses, in order to do that, you do have a massive upfront cost. It's it's in the, the tens of billions. It's not insignificant. Um, so not something that I think would traditionally suit this, uh, this chancellor and the treasury as it stands. And, and I don't think it would ever really suit any treasury in recent history to to do that but that said uh, clearly there is a desire and and i think a uh, really strong and, and praiseworthy recognition that 
our productivity numbers are crap. They're, they're absolutely terrible in comparison to the rest of the G7. It's stagnant. Our business investment and the way that we treat investment in the tax system is, internationally speaking, also crap. And it's great that we're at least talking about that. You know, first step is admitting you have a problem. And it seems like we're finally doing that. And we're addressing what I think uh, a lot of us on the center right see as one of the main causes of stagnant UK productivity. Now, what I see as as the more likely scenario um, is either we'll get a kind of a, a gradual shift or like a, a, a moderate movement on how much we tax investment. Um, so not full expensing, but certainly more generous capital allowances for businesses, just not the, the kind of complete, um, you know, zero taxes on investment that we, we might like to see. Um, or we'll see something called neutral cost recovery, which is basically a way of approximating um, the treatment that businesses would get under full expensing. But instead of um, doing it all up front, what you do is you, uh, you take into account things like inflation uh, and something called the time value of money. And over time, businesses will, will basically deduct um, the full, the, the actual cost uh, of their investment from their tax bill rather than um, be penalized because uh, the value of that investment gets uh, gets changed by inflation uh, and also by the, the time value of money. So hopefully we'll see some serious reform on this issue. It seems like there's appetite um, and there's also a way through neutral cost recovery of doing it without the huge upfront hit that you get to, to public finances. So we can cross our fingers uh, and shout very loudly about uh, abolishing the factory taxes, I think we should, um, because it is fundamentally it's a factory tax. It plays in very well with a leveling up agenda, because um, if you're heavily taxing uh, business investment in plant machinery, in structures and buildings, you are disproportionately penalizing more bricks and mortar factory based sort of businesses than you are, say, the service sector, which uses less of those those kind of capital assets. Yeah, I actually just wanted to come back, Dan, on what you said about whether this would be suited to this government and this chancellor. Um, one argument that I think really could be made is actually it's a really obvious way of levelling up. So obviously cutting corporation tax is a really good thing, um, but this mainly benefits service sector firms. So therefore benefits, you know, the low capital intensive knowledge economy businesses in the southeast of London. But whereas the high capital businesses tend to be in the Midlands and the north. So actually this would be a really good way of levelling up. I would argue. Yeah, and, and and this thing we've given them the framing. It's the perfect framing. Yeah, Abolish exactly. the factory. Why aren't they doing it right now? <laughs> it's uh, yeah. Ho- hopefully, we'll we'll get a, a more long term victory on this because the super deduction was was great when it was announced, but at the end it it was temporary. Um, I imagine because of that that treasury brain reluctance to to have a sort of you know a long term fiscal hit. Um, or revenue hit rather but at the end of the day this is probably if one of if not the best pro-growth pro-investment pro-employment tax reforms out there uh, and the positive effects are going to be seen for many decades to come if we do this well that's the thing i mean the initial point of the of the super deduction i think was to sort of put boosters on investment post-pandemic and the rationale was then that once investment had been returned to a pre-pandemic level that you could then get rid of this policy and it would be fine Mm. but unfortunately you know by by making it a time-limited offer what really happens is rather than 
properly boosting investment, you just end up shifting, uh, you know, investment around given the way investment cycles right. work. And so we, you know, I think that's really what we're getting at with with fingers crossed is that you really want the treasury to to kind of see this policy through rather than just use it as a sort of a political lever right exactly the the temporary nature is hopefully not going to cause much concern for some of those in the treasury who might look at this and say oh well you know it hasn't necessarily had the the effect that we hope for or i mean first off we're coming out of lockdown and a massive pandemic so of course it won't have the effect that we we might have expected um but also that it might have shifted around investment rather than boosting it in the long run which is exactly why we need to make it permanent any listeners that that want to know more of course we have our abolish the factory tax uh, research paper and campaign page if you just put abolish the factory tax into google or your any other search engine others are available then uh then you'll be able to find more information. The, the the final thing I wanted to end on, if you guys have any thoughts on it, is, uh, again, I was reading this morning that the forecasts for inflation by, by some metrics are set to go up to around 8% this year, and that by 2024, we'll, we'll have a growth rate that's you know fairly close to 1%. I was wondering if there, there were any sort of headline policies that you think Rishi should have mentioned during the May's lecture that he didn't, uh, that would really try and put boosters on growth oh i mean housing's the key one right i know it's not the the traditional treasury area of of competence but i think there should be more attention paid in the treasury to the impact that housing has on productivity there's a good paper from a friend of ours at the entrepreneurs network aria babu recently and also friend of the podcast that talked about the story is well known when it comes to people not being able to move where they want to because of uh housing supply shortage that having large productivity effects, um, reducing the geographical mobility of labor. But it's not just in terms of people moving where they want to, it's also in terms of office space costs. And um, because the same housing supply shortage is also true when it comes to, to office space as well. Uh, and that has a huge impact on businesses being able to locate themselves um, in the areas that they want to in order to, to best boost their productivity and to benefit from the sort of agglomeration effects that you get in major cities where demand for office space as well as for housing is the highest and now that might be blunted to some extent by the rise of remote work but it's still very much a a vital factor in in hampering and holding back the uk's productivity numbers so for my money the treasury should be just as interested in things like street votes um, as the department for leveling up and various other nouns that it's now called well i'm satisfied with that uh i think we'll move on to the police crime sentencing and courts bill now so this week mps voted on the police crime sentencing and courts bill which seeks to introduce greater police powers on protests this includes impositions of start and finishing times criminal sentences for causing a public nuisance and limits on noise so the question i'd like to put to you mainly john and Dan, is is this a legitimate response to some of the more extreme methods of protest we've seen used by groups like Insulate Britain in recent years? Or is it another unnecessary statist intervention which interferes with some of our basic freedoms? So I think the first major question actually would be, are the measures in this bill the right way of dealing with some of the more extreme methods of protests we've seen groups like Extinction Rebellion and Insulate Britain use? Um, and if not, how do you think the government and the police can better deal with this kind of protest? I mean, I find you know, some of Extinction Rebellion's actions and, and more specifically Insulate Britain's actions as frustrating as anybody else. In fact, probably 
less frustrating because I don't drive. You know, I, we, we, we all saw those videos, right, of them gluing themselves to the road and, and causing uh, disruption. Of course, you want to be able to stop that. It, you know, it's, it's not fair on, on people just trying to get to work or take their kids to school or make medical appointments or whatever. Um, but it's important to bear in mind the cost, I think, of introducing, you know, these new measures uh, to deal with those sorts of, of protest. I'm not convinced uh, that the, the trade-offs that you'd make uh, for sort of individual liberty and the right to protest uh, are enough to, to, to justify uh, or sorry, that the, the behavior of Extinction Rebellion and Insurgent are enough to justify those those impositions. I think there are sort of more abstract consequences for doing that sort of thing uh, that are much harder to balance off against this kind of very visual. I was going to say propaganda. It's not sort of like anti-propaganda for the, for these uh, for these organizations. Um, so I'm I'm not I'm not particularly keen to see the the bill go through in its current incarnation. So, so, so my take on this when I first started looking into it was, well, aren't, aren't all of these things that the bill is kind of claiming to tackle, or at least the Home Secretary is talking about, they're, they're already illegal, right? Criminal damage is illegal. Obstructing highways is already illegal. Getting in the way of ambulances, hindering emergency vehicles is already illegal. So why do we need more expansive powers and law given to police to deal with things that are already illegal it's a similar sort of story when it comes to the online safety bill interestingly enough where you've got laws on the books to deal with most of the the kind of perceived problems that are being discussed it's just that um for various reasons in in most uh, many people's perceptions they're not being enforced properly and you know the extinction rebellion protests of late seem to be this classic example where the police i mean even cresta dick said at the time that she had powers to deal with these protests so why do we need more draconian laws on protests to, to kind of change that? And I guess the kind of undercurrent of this that I see, and I'm interested in whether you agree with me here, Emily, is that basically the police didn't enforce the laws in the way that the Home Secretary wanted them to when it came to the Extinction Rebellion protests. So this new bill is kind of an attempt to force them to act in the way that the government wants them to uh, even though they were acting within their their powers and their purview when they first responded. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right in that. Um, so it's interesting that as part of the bill, it states that the Home Secretary will have the power through what they call secondary legislation to define um, and give examples of what the serious disruption to the community will be. So that's very much the Home Secretary giving themselves the power. Um, but I think another major part of it is the government needs to be seen to be doing something. So people were very annoyed about it about this rightly at the time. And I think it's the same with the online safety bill. Um, But I think as Theresa May quite rightly pointed out in debate where she said, um, there will be people who will have seen scenes of protests and will have asked, why isn't the government doing something? Um, And actually the answer in many cases is that simply that we live in a democratic free society. I think another really pertinent example of this within the bill is that um, actually all of these uh, conditions can be imposed on uh, one person protest. So it looks to me like it's designed quite specifically to stifle individuals like Steve Bray. Um, But I would say that is very much cracking a nut with a sledgehammer. Oh, it is tempting, though, when it comes to Steve Bray. Uh, Yeah, he is. I can can totally (laughs) see that. (laughs) I mean, I was about to say the the take from all of us seems to be that this is about the the correct interpretation and application of existing laws but you know perhaps for steve we could we could make an exception (laughs) (laughs) um so i'd be interested to know in what sort of specific ways do you think that the government's uh proposals are too wide-ranging 
it seems like there's a lot of discretion around choosing to crack down on protests as a result of the amount of noise they make as far as i understand that seems to me like it opens up quite a a bad avenue for police to to really use uh, something that shouldn't be used as discretion for for what's an okay protest and what's not um and if you look at part three of the bill specifically there's a lot of stuff in there that really does undermine what are important rights to to free assembly and to free expression so there's a lot of stuff in there that that i think would give any civil liberties activist or anyone even vaguely concerned with civil liberties a serious cause for concern i would say it's also quite an unhelpful burden on the exercises uh, of the police's professional discretion as well in in what sense what is in the police are now going to have to make sort of very sort of vague decisions on whether they think a protest is too noisy mm. which i think is sort of quite a hindrance on their day-to-day job in some cases yeah essentially they're going to carry around kind of decibel readers and yeah. sorry you, you, you must be this quiet to have your right to free expression it seems a little uh... yeah it's, <laughs> yeah it's immensely vague as well because i think victoria atkins during the reading reading of the bill when when she was asked about this she said oh well, maybe the noise you know the noise would complain uh would um depend on whether the building is double glazed or not so are the police meant to check if all the windows are now double glazed when they're going around their, their duties? Seems a bit silly. I was talking to Madsen recently about about sort of overly zealous legislation. And he made quite an interesting point, which is that the more you legislate, the more you kind of make these absurd demands on people who are responsible for carrying out the legislation. Uh, so, you know, you can see here, that, as we were just saying, will police have to walk around with sound meters, right? It probably should be the case that it's just up to the police themselves uh, to decide their own discretion how to handle these things. Um, and the more, more and more you legislate, the more and more they have to sort of waste their time with these very bizarre exercises that are actually not particularly to do with policing at all, or, or at least maintaining public order. Yeah, there's also a provision in it which I found quite odd, which was that it would make it a crime to not follow protest restrictions that protesters ought to have known about even if uh, they haven't been told as much by uh, a police officer or, or the relevant police authority and that that to me seems very very strange you know if, if you for example you know when, when we're walking to to and from the office some days we might walk past a, a protest that's taking place on parliament square and if it's say for example against this bill or if it's uh, in favor of uh, abolishing the factory taxes i'm sure there will be a mass protest on that any day now we might look at that protest on the way to work and say, oh, I'm, I might pop along and, and join that and steal someone's placard and hold that up and, and agree with these people. Uh, and it might transpire later that actually uh, one of the restrictions is that I'm not allowed to shout above 10 decibels in that protest. Otherwise, um, I'll be creating a public nuisance. Obviously, I'm, I'm being sarcastic here. But the, the, the general point that people ought to know about protest restrictions, often when people... Uh, getting involved in a, a particular protest it might just be a case of stumbling across it and and joining in uh, and then getting criminalized because we ought to have known that we needed to follow restriction x or restriction y well that to me seems like a, a little bit too far for <laughs> too far impacting on our civil liberties and our, our free expression if we're not able to do that or at least it creates a, a chilling effect on people you know, joining protests where they might not have access to the full information. Um, you know, maybe people don't follow the Metropolitan Police account on Twitter in the case of London and they don't read the the announcements and, and you know, maybe the organiser of the protest says it at the start but doesn't say it every five minutes. Does that count as 
uh, we ought to know because we ought to have been from the protests at the start. It opens up a whole can of worms that to me seems uh, seems rather worrying. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually. Um, and I think it's quite surprising that MPs haven't really thought that through when legislating for this bill, um, because I'm aware that quite a few MPs will often come out of Parliament themselves and see um, a protest for a cause that they personally believe in happening on Parliament Square, and they'll go and join in. So I think you're quite right on that one. So actually, that leads me to another question, which is essentially, do we think that this is likely to have a chilling effect on democracy? Um, and do we think that ordinary citizens will be less likely to participate in protest because of the new laws. And I think this is quite a particularly important example because of what's happening in Russia at the moment where there is a chilling effect on protests against the war. In some ways it has a perverse incentive, right, in that there's been so many large protests against this bill. So so ironically, the bill has massively increased uh, <laughs> protests that it's probably designed to, to crack down on. Of course, they, you know, the, um, those who support the bill w- would argue that it's not designed to crack down on protests so much as uh, stop the ones that are most disruptive to public life. But but nonetheless, that, that seems to have been the case so far. But yes, I, d- I do think undoubtedly this is going to have a, a chilling effect on uh, forms of democratic expression other than going to the ballot box. And, and those forms of democratic expression are are important. I I'm not necessarily convinced that they are they are always the best or, or the most effective way of um, of changing public policy. That's why I'm in a, a think tank and not in um, a, a protest campaigning organisation. But nonetheless, uh, we should be allowed to do it. Uh, we should be allowed to do it in a way that is is far less restricted than it will be uh, if this bill is uh, is passed. And you know, even though a lot of the time. The kind of issues at play when it comes to mass protest are, are ones that that I tend to be uh, be on the opposite side of the argument to. Um, people should be should be free to do that. It's very important, and it, it's a kind of accompanying a general commitment towards the principles of free speech is that that should extend uh, as far as possible to to protests as well. I mean, to me, the the issue, as much as chilling effects, what it means about the government's priorities. I mean, to my mind, I would rather that, you know, especially in the current context, the government wasn't spending resources, and now, you know, the legislative window now is shrinking until the next general election as well, that they weren't spending time pursuing bills like this, um, that they spent their time considering lifting the ban on asylum seekers uh, from working, for example, um, again, especially in, in the context of Ukraine. And to me, it speaks of a government that's more interested in kind of pandering to what it thinks is what the general public wants with regards to protests rather than doing things that are actually good for society and 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 by and large you know morally good with regards to immigration for example right it, it, it's very culture worry isn't it you know yeah. you look at some of the other things in there it's up to 10 years in prison for for statue toppling or whatever creating a, a new offense for that um and same with with the the online safety bill all of these very poorly thought through new regulations that that are supposed to be based on uh, getting the mum's net vote because my kid has seen something bad on TikTok, even though the laws are, again, already in place to do all these things. Now, I, I get that they might not be being enforced as much or in the way that the government would like. But to me, if if you want to do that, that's the way you do that is through institutional change at the policing level rather than new laws that to try and you know, smash it through. It's unfortunately it's something that that takes a little bit longer, but is essential that we do it in a certain way in order to preserve the sort of civil liberties and and freedom of expression and free speech rights that make Britain such 
an attractive country to live in 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 many ways yeah you can just tell that this you know if the bill goes through in its current incarnation that that parts of it are going to make its way onto sort of some conservative campaigning documents you know come come the next general election as a sort of a oh we're tough on crime pitch right i mean that that to me seems to be a lot of the motivation behind this is more about saying look we've done x and y ostensibly to make your life safer but actually really it's it's just political posturing yeah i think you're quite right in that actually i think that this is a government that has historically been led by a public polling um but i think they've kind of shot themselves in the foot a little bit with this one because at, at the time they you know started legislating for this bill people were really angry about the 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 kind of protests that insulate britain were holding but actually public opinion i would say has moved on and so now people are now looking at this bill with fresh eyes and saying well hang on actually this really does impact our civil liberties in ways that i don't much like well on that note i think it's probably time to bring this episode of the pin factory podcast to a close uh, i've been daniel Pryor, our head of research and it's been a pleasure to be joined for the first time by our head of communications emily fielder certainly not the last time you'll hear her on the pin factory uh, as well as our director of strategy John McDonald. If you like what you've heard, then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. And we will see you next week for yet more banter analysis. Thank you very much for listening.